Now we move to the second part of our time together, and that's where Father Charlie Gordon, a theologian, a systematic theologian with a special interest in literature and how the divine can erupt into the world through uh, the words of literature, uh, takes on perspectives from different uh, disciplines. And we've, we've been doing this for 10 years because we would love for, um, we would love for the top high school students in Oregon or Washington or Hawaii or Wisconsin or Bhutan, anywhere. We would like them to think that UP is the place that would be a great place for them. And so we do that with this signature um, lecture each year. So I invite you to, um, so I, I tell my students, I invite you to assume the video position. We're going to have several um, images on the screen there, so we want you to be able to see that comfortably. And, um, and I will dive in. An aunt walks into her nephew's house for his eighth birthday party. He leaps into her arms with a hug so exuberant that her wrist is broken. Aunt sues nephew for medical bills. Story is captured on Facebook and goes viral in all social media. Aunt is designated the most hated woman in America that week. Proof positive, say the pundits, that the family is under attack in this country. Well, that might sound like the outline of a very bad joke, but the facts check out until we find that in Connecticut, where this story unfolded in the last year, only actual individuals, not corporations or companies, can be named in suits brought about by medical insurance companies, and the individual named in the suit must have been a physical participant in the event. Our contempt might be better aimed at such draconian rules than toward a woman faced with $127,000 in unexpected medical bills. But the outcry that she has faced as a poster child for the demise of the American family is an excellent entry point for unpacking some crucial trends in measurable facts about families in these early years of the 21st century. Bumper stickers, Banners and t-shirts profess that love makes a family, and many social scientists would commend that assertion, even if it's maddeningly vague. The U.S. Census Bureau has not kept pace with such a fluid understanding of the family unit, defining it more specifically as, quote, two or more people living together related by birth, marriage, or adoption, end quote. Most credible social scientists, whose job it is to track the lived reality of people as individuals or groups, note that this definition is woefully inadequate at capturing the panoply of configurations of people who regard themselves as a family. It doesn't account, for instance, for the close to 450,000 units of foster parents and their non-related foster children, or the 4.9 million children, which is about 7% of all children in the United States, who are being raised by their grandparents. Nor does it factor in cohabiting couples, either heterosexual or same-sex. 
A definition of family that, that excludes up to 50% of the population has some serious deficits. To account for the dynamic nature of household configurations currently prevalent in the U.S., mainstream sociologists and developmental psychologists tend to use the following parameters to denote a family. It's an intimate group of two or more people who live together in a committed relationship who care for one another and for any children, and who share activities and close emotional ties. Even that more inclusive definition proves troubling to some, as it's not in step with changing reproductive technologies. For instance, who is parent to the child who is carried to term by one woman arising from donated eggs and sperm from two other donors and delivered to one or two other people who intend to raise the child? Notions of parent and child get complicated very quickly in such a scenario, and that's merely the nomenclature, not the moral, ethical, or legal uh, obligations which are not keeping pace with our scientific capacities. Regardless of whether we subscribe to a narrow or to an expansive definition of family, few researchers disagree on the assertion that families have changed a lot in the last hundred years. The more perplexing question lays in categorizing those changes as detrimental, neutral, or beneficial. Some of those characterizations may just be spin, but consider these facts. First, fathers in intact families are spending more time with their children than at any point in the last 100 years. That's good news for anyone who argues for the benefits of fathers teaching their sons how to be men and their daughters of what to expect from men. Second, while the amount of time mothers spend in their homes has decreased over the last 50 years, due largely to their entering the paid workforce, the actual number of hours they spend with each individual child has increased substantially as the number of children they have has decreased. Despite the popular image of the latchkey child, or its even more insidious counterpart, the free-range child, now making headlines as neighbors report the ghastly sight of children playing unsupervised in their own backyards or local parks, children have never received so much attention from their parents. Older folks, those who raised their children in the 1940s to the 1950s, report that their adult children are far better communicators with their own children and help with homework much more than they ever did. In fact, the only children documented as receiving less attention from their parents than in previous generations are those born into the most affluent families. In New York's Upper West Side, for instance, parents who lack the time or the will to deal with the messiness of such traditional parental tasks as potty training, birthday party throwing, and teaching how to say please and thank you can now outsource that unpleasantness of such duties to professionals for prices ranging from $85 per 20-minute session to $7,400 for a full month. 
With all the diversity in defining what makes a family and how we should live out the rights and responsibilities of living in one, a trend that seems heartening across cultures and socioeconomic statuses is the nature of people's aspirations for their own families. Expectations of ourselves as parents and spouses have never been higher, even higher than the illusory good old days. It's not how much better we used to be that captures people's imaginations, but how much better we want to be. Differences within family types appear to be more pronounced and salient than differences between family types. Children born into extreme poverty can exhibit resilience and ingenuity and a capacity to forgive atrocities that would bring many of us to our knees, while children born with every financial and emotional advantage can suffer debilitating ennui and despair. For all the wringing of hands and bemoaning of the passing of an illusory golden past, the big picture of social science research repeatedly supports only one assertion about the health of American families. No particular family structure guarantees success and no particular form is doomed to fail. Current research also supports the notion that while it's indeed true that what we mean by family has changed tremendously in the past century, families have always been in flux, adapting to solve the problems of one social context only to be confronted by an altogether new one. Most sociologists would argue that it's not families who have changed too much, rather it's our other institutions have changed too little. Our work policies and even school schedules are rooted firmly in the needs of decades ago. What is a family? Sociologist Christopher Lash notes that, regardless of one's official definition, family is a paradox. It has the potential to be both a haven in a heartless world and among the most physically and psychologically brutal settings in society. And both of these have always been true. As we move from this necessarily brief as we move from this necessarily brief sketch of what we've called the maelstrom of families to the place where we'll consider family to be the locus of love and mercy, we might ponder the insight of historian John Gillis, who observed that all of us, all of us have two families, the one we live with and the one we live by. TV and cinema have certainly provided us with fodder for the latter, from Leave it to Beaver, to The Brady Bunch, which was the first popular blended family, to the new family configurations of The Walking Dead, made necessary by the zombie apocalypse. We'll consider some of those images and implications next. For years, perplexed academics and cultural commentators, many of them middle-aged or older, have been trying to account for the zombie phenomenon. Why, they have wondered, do young people find zombie movies so compelling? What do the zombies symbolize? There's a general consensus that zombies represent fear. But fear of what? Is it fear of the future, of death, 
of technology, of unchecked population growth. These and countless other theories have been put forward. We believe that the true significance of zombies can be summarized in a paraphrase of Walt Kelly's famous slogan from Pogo, we have met the zombies and they are us. Not us in general, but us referring specifically to the generation currently in cultural ascendancy, the very generation personified by the academics and cultural commentators who are grappling with the question. Little wonder that they, we, fail to see the uncomfortable truth. You see, zombies are not generic persons. Rather, they represent particular professions and social roles. They are zombie doctors and zombie lawyers, zombie police officers and zombie priests, zombie business executives and zombie teachers. In short, they are zombified representatives of all of the professions and roles that young people expect to turn to for nurturing, protection, and inspiration. But in recent years, these professions have been discredited, all of them, from presidents preying on interns to high school coaches to secret service agents, have proved grossly disappointing at best and predators at worst. I mean, Bill Cosby, for heaven's sake. Seen close up, they are monsters. And of course, the ultimate threat is that the zombies will make the young like themselves. Parents do not escape this indictment. So often in zombie films, young survivors struggle to return home, only to find their zombified parents waiting there to devour them. Young people long for parents who are worthy of love and trust, who can be relied upon to be there when needed and who generally act like grown-ups. Instead, the young become pawns in custody battles and hostages in emotional blackmail schemes. They end up trying to provide solace and nurturing to the very people who ought to be providing these things for them. Like zombies, parents are not evil. They didn't have bad intentions. Things just happened to them. The society created by these inadequate elders is like that depicted in the first Hunger Games film, which may be the definitive expression of revulsion felt by the young toward the older generation and the world it has created. In Hunger Games, adults are at best like Katniss's mother, so traumatized by life that they are effectively useless. More generally, they are the arbiters of a society that eats its young even when it isn't hungry. It's an effete, exhausted society that exploits youthful energy and emotions to tempt its jaded palate. The most gifted of the young need to be deft liars and to turn upon each other merely to survive. One might also offer in evidence here the duplicitous elders of Ender's Game, who marshal the gifts and energies of the young, including their capacity for friendship, loyalty, and trust, for an ostensibly noble purpose, only to cynically deploy them without their knowledge in a murderous deception. For at least three reasons, 
the scales will always be weighted in favor of elders seeking to exploit the young. First, the established generation is acting from a position of power. Second, it has superior knowledge of the way the world works. Third, the young have an almost biological predisposition to trust the very people who are preying upon them. I imagine most of us who are teachers and academics have had the experience of being lionized by individual students. In our more reflective moments, we will acknowledge that their idealized vision of us has less to do with any special qualities we possess than it has with their need, at a particular point in their development, to see someone in such a light. To meet their requirements, we need only refrain from exploiting their trusting vulnerability. Pray God we have the grace to do so. But if we chose to use them for our own ends, how easy it would be. The wider society appears to have no such moral qualms. It treats young people the way it treats forests or mineral deposits, as natural resources to be commodified. Young people striving with one another to obtain low-paid or unpaid internships can seem like cows competing to be the first to be milked. Where do young people turn to satisfy their deep yearning for security, identity, and coherence amidst the maelstrom? One tactic is exemplified by the 2012 British film Cockneys vs. Zombies, in which the apocalypse is situated in London's East End. The heroes, Terry and Andy, are a pair of brothers who were orphaned as children when their criminal parents died in a hail of police bullets. As one of the brothers admits to the other amidst the apocalypse, mum and dad probably didn't provide good role models for dealing with the situation. So the brothers turn instead to their grandfather and his friends, all of whom are residents of Bowbell's care home. As one of the brothers remarks, granddad can handle anything. He fought in the war. Granddad and the other pensioners constitute a shrinking reservoir of intact Cockney culture in a London that is rapidly gentrifying. Bowbells itself is under threat from developers who have planning permission to tear it down in order to build condos promising luxurious living in the heart of East London. Bowbells is the heart of East London in a deeper sense as well. The developers are represented in the film by an inspector who makes himself unpleasant to the pensioners in the days before their scheduled expulsion from the home. Granddad throws the inspector out. Terry and Andy have jobs delivering meals to Bowbells. Granddad subjects them to rough mentoring, urging them to get a proper job. He tells them, when I was 15, I lied about my age so I could sign up and fight the Nazis. What are you two fighting? Traffic? Let me mark your card, sunshine. Delivering meals on wheels to old age, old age pensioners ain't a lifetime profession. Look at you. You're about as much use as an ashtray on a motorbike. 
when Terry, Andy, and their friends join forces with the pensioners to fight the zombies, it turns out that Granddad and the other elderly Cockneys can indeed handle anything, as evidenced when Granddad's frail love interest, Peggy, casually locks and loads an AK-47. Together, the old and the young escape the zombies. In the process, Terry and Andy gain their granddad's approval. In one of the last scenes, young and old open fire simultaneously on the now zombified inspector, destroying him. An alliance between the emerging generation and the departing one has succeeded in overcoming the rapacious established order. Along the way, Terry and Andy have found in their granddad a source of the nurturing protection and inspiration they crave. Granddad, who is representative of a value-laden culture that is passing away, can be depended upon. With Granddad, appearances are not deceiving. He is exactly what he appears to be. The tactic that succeeds in Cockneys versus Zombies isn't foolproof. It fails in M. Night Shyamalan's most recent film, The Visit. Becca is in her mid-teens. Tyler is her little brother. Their father is absent. Their mother is alienated from her own parents. She hasn't seen them in years. She receives an invitation from her parents, inviting her to bring the children for a visit to the farm where she grew up. She can't bring herself to go, but agrees to send Becca and Tyler. They are met at the train station by a pair of picture-perfect grandparents who ask to be called Nana and Pop-Pop. In the course of the visit, the grandparents' behavior becomes increasingly eccentric and then aberrant. Evincing a remarkable degree of maturity, the children try to rationalize and accommodate their grandparents' behavior. They consult gerontology websites to research the disorders that characterize old age, and with increasing difficulty convince themselves that everything is perfectly normal. In the end, we discover that the couple claiming to be Nana and Pop-Pop are in fact a pair of psych psychopathic killers who have murdered the children's real grandparents and taken their place. So apparently grandparents too are not what they purport to be. They are not the solution. The visit depicts the futility of turning to the elderly as a means by which the young may successfully negotiate a dystopian society. The film is also remarkable for its touching portrayal of the way children are driven to a precocious maturity in the course of their efforts to convince themselves that their instinctive need to lean upon older relatives and other authority figures is justified. This point was first brought home to me at a public forum called to discuss the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic priesthood. During the question and answer period, an undergraduate said, maybe it's our fault. Maybe they are behaving this way because we didn't love our priests enough. I nearly wept. It is, of course, the same thought that crosses the minds of children when they learn their parents are divorcing. 
When traditional family relationships fail to provide sufficient nurturing, protection, and inspiration to sustain them in a world that regards them as prey, the young take another tack. Almost as a last resort, they fall back upon one another, cobbling together surrogate families from among their peers. By this means, they construct a community of values that the wider culture no longer provides. One is reminded here of the Portugal the Man anthem, Modern Jesus, and the poignant bravado of the lyric, The only rule we need is never giving up. The only faith we have is faith in us. The 2009 film Zombieland perhaps best exemplifies this tactic. Zombieland is a road movie in which a seemingly mismatched band of young people travel across a zombie-infested United States to reach Pacific Playland, a Los Angeles amusement park that is rumored to be zombie-free. Of course, this quasi-Disneyland represents their collective childhood memories of a pre-apocalyptic occasion when their families were intact and everyone was happy. For a moment, at least, everything seemed perfect. No wonder they are willing to risk their lives to get there. The members of the group call each other by the names of their hometowns. Significantly, one of them, Columbus, is preoccupied with composing a set of rules suited to the apocalyptic circumstances of the New World. The rules include such dicta as get a kick-ass partner, check the back seat, beware of bathrooms, and the notorious double tap. The kick-ass partner that Columbus refers to is a character named Tallahassee. His personal quest is for his favorite snack food, there's also a pair of con artist sisters, Wichita and Little Rock. Along the way, the members of the disparate group bond with one another. Finally, after a climactic encounter with a zombie horde in the theme park, their relationship is solemnized over a remarkably Eucharistic Twinkie. Columbus, the narrator, relates in a voiceover, that face? That's me realizing that those smart girls in that big black truck and that big guy in the snakeskin jacket, they were the closest thing to something I had always wanted but never really had, a family. I trusted them and they trusted me. Tallahassee got his Twinkie. And even though life will never be simple or innocent again, as he savored that spongy yellow log of cream, we had hope. We had each other. And without other people, he might as well be a zombie. Will this new kind of family endure? We have reason to be less than sanguine. The wider social environment remains toxic. We can anticipate that over time, promises will continue to be broken, betrayals will continue to occur. One suspects, for instance, that despite their fervent avowal of faith in one another, it is only a matter of time before Portugal the Man is just another depressing episode of VH1's Behind the Music. Nevertheless, the new families are reason to be encouraged in the generally discouraging context of contemporary cinema. They afford hope, even if it's forlorn. 
If there's something more on offer, we might find it in the 2013 Zam Ram Kam, Warm Bodies. The hero in the film is a young zombie who can't remember the name he had in life. The best he can do is recall the first initial, so he comes to be known as R. The heroine is an uninfected young woman named Julie. R and Julie, Shakespeare scholars take note. When R and Julie are thrown together, R is stunned to realize that she stirs feelings in his zombified heart. Now R faces a choice. Should he love Julie or eat her brains? This is essentially the choice we all face when we encounter another human being. Will we love them as best we can or will we treat them as commodities to be exploited and consumed? If we take the latter course, our concerns will be, is this person a threat, or is he or she potentially useful to me? Do I want to use this person to gratify my appetites, or can I manipulate him or her to advance my own ends? If we choose to love the person we have encountered, we will see him or her as having inherent worth, rather than as the object of our desire. We will notice and cherish what is beautiful in them, however unprepossessing and useless they may appear. We will put their good ahead of our own. In the event, as the plot of the movie parallels Shakespeare's play, R chooses the nobler course. Julie comes to return his love, and as their relationship deepens, his zombie symptoms begin to fade. Love is making him human again. When R's fellow zombies witness the relationship between R and Julie, their hearts too are, are warmed. Their humanity too is progressively restored. Finally, the convalescent zombies overcome the suspicions of the remaining humans and join forces with them to defeat the incorrigible bonies, zombies who have abandoned hope entirely and so shed any trace of humanity. Warm Bodies holds out the hope that even amidst the apocalypse, love can restore community and redeem the world. Pope Francis is a film buff. His own favorite film, Federico Fellini's La Strada, is relevant to our discussion. Its heroine is a trusting young woman named Gelsomina. Her mother sells her into the service of an itinerant strongman named Zampano for 10,000 lira, despite the fact that Gelsomina's older sister Rosa died in Zampano's employ the year before. Zampano travels from place to place, entertaining villagers by bursting chains that have been strapped tightly across his chest. He takes Gelsomina with him on the road. Zampano teaches Gelsomina to clown for his audiences. She learns to play a trumpet and a drum and to dance for the crowds. With touching sincerity, Gelsomina does her best to please her employer. He nevertheless uses brutish intimidation to maintain control over her. In time, she rebels, forming a relationship with a character called Il Mato, the Fool. 
The Almato suggests to Gelsomina that everyone and everything has a purpose, even a pebble, even Gelsomina herself. But Zampano kills Ilmato, thereby breaking Gelsomina's spirit, making her useless as an entertainer. Zampano abandons her and learns years later that she has wasted away and died. Here we have yet another young person, failed by a parent, exploited by a powerful employer, and thwarted in her good faith efforts to find meaning enough to sustain life. As we might expect, given his love of La Strada, Pope Francis is aware of the issues we have been discussing and is passionate about them. In a speech during his recent visit to Cuba, he acknowledged that young people today have reason to despair, afflicted as they are by a number of debilitating social circumstances. Among these, he lamented the victimization of the young by a throwaway culture. There are, he said, children who aren't loved and are killed before being born. He cited high youth unemployment, which he characterized as a hidden euthanasia. In his words, a nation that doesn't create job opportunities leads a young person to suicide because of a lack of possibilities or to joining armies of destruction. You'd think he'd been watching the films we've been talking about. In the face of all of this, the Pope pleaded with the young not to give up and to have hope. In order to sustain hope, he urged them to seek community, remarking, the way of hope isn't easy and can't be walked alone. In this connection, referencing an African proverb, he urged, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, walk with someone, even if you think differently or have different perspectives. I want for you to walk together so that you don't lose hope. The bit about sustaining relationships with people who think differently than oneself is particularly significant. Pope Francis is insistent that sheltering behind stultifying ideologies vitiates dialogue and leeches away hope. His meeting with Fidel Castro during his recent Cuba visit is instructive in this regard. When it came time for the ritual exchange of gifts, among those Pope Francis gave the Cuban leader was a book by the Jesuit priest, Father Armando Lorente, who had been one of Castro's teachers. Lorente was driven out into exile after the Cuban Revolution. It was as if the Pope were saying to Castro, look, this is a man you knew, a man you presumably admired and even loved. Remember him and your relationship with him and so see past the crippling limits of your ideology and experience joy. We will turn to the role of joy in the Pope's thought in a moment, but let us first consider why ideological conflict is so characteristic of our time. I imagine it's self-evident that when traditional family relationships and the wider society fail to provide protection, nurturing, and coherence, sufficient to ground a meaningful life. A person is necessarily thrown back on his or her own resources. People today feel compelled to determine what they personally believe and to defend those principles to the last ditch. 
When they encounter others who share their convictions, they ally with them in a bitter struggle against those who think differently. Those others come to be seen as monsters that must be resisted and destroyed, lest all hope be lost. But in the Pope's theology, there's a deeper consideration at play. Let me describe it by reference to the Platonic concept of Cora as mediated through the thought of the Bulgarian feminist philosopher and literary critic, Julia Kristeva. Roughly speaking, the Cora is being, but being understood in a particular sense. The Cora is preconceptual being. It is being previous to any differentiation. It has no parts. It has not been reduced to categories. From time to time in the course of a lifetime, the human individual encounters or invests the Cora. On these occasions, he or she feels compelled to describe and explain what is being experienced. This is where the concepts and categories come in. While this effort is underway, the human subject is acutely aware of the inadequacy of the formulations being taken away from the encounter. In time, though, one's particular characterization of the Cora comes to be regarded as exhaustive and perfect. In the end, it is preferred to the Cora itself and is defended vigorously against alternative conceptions. This describes the situation of today's entrenched ideologies. Pope Francis's solution to this impasse is the joy of the gospel, which is the English title of his apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium. For Christians, the encounter with being is the encounter with Jesus Christ. While he doesn't speak explicitly of the Korah, the Pope does insist that Jesus, quote, breaks through the dull categories with which we would enclose him, and he constantly amazes us by his divine creativity, unquote. When a Christian encounters Jesus Christ, he or she feels infinitely loved. This causes the Christian to feel joy. The human instinct upon experiencing this joy is to immediately share it with others. This instinct is analogous to our desire upon seeing a beautiful sunset to look around immediately for someone with whom to share the experience. If there's no one there to share it with, one's own experience of the sunset seems somehow diminished. When Christians share the joy, they are doing what God created them to do, and they are participating in the new evangelization for which the Pope is calling. But of course, the encounter with Christ is subject to the same hazards described by Kristeva. Our conceptualization of what we have experienced might in time become stale. We might come to prefer our conception of the encounter to Christ himself and come to conflict with those whose experience is different. Christ can thus be reduced to an idolatrous ideology. Pope Francis's prescription for avoiding these pitfalls is to encounter Christ anew every day. He writes, quote, 
whenever we make the effort to return to the source and to recover the freshness of the gospel, new avenues arise. New paths of creativity open up with different forms of expression, more eloquent signs and words with new meaning for today's world. Unquote. When Pope Francis refers to today's world, he means it quite literally. We are to share the joy we feel at being infinitely loved in today's encounter with Jesus Christ. By succumbing to the instinct to share today's joy, we subvert ideology and engage in dialogue that brings hope. Meanwhile, the recurring experience of being infinitely loved provides the nurturing, coherence, and inspiration necessary to support a meaningful life. Young people who are spiritual but not religious might think back to the most spiritual experience they've had. We're willing to bet that in that moment they felt infinitely loved and that they need never be afraid again. That experience was what Pope Francis means by joy. It can be foundational for a coherent life. The recently concluded Synod on the Family in Rome is evidence that the Pope has not despaired of the family as a locus of nurturing, protection, and inspiration. It remains the context in which the young are most likely to encounter selfless love. One thing is certain. If today's young people are able, by these or other means, to transcend their parlous circumstances with hope, and community intact, their own grandchildren will one day instinctively turn to them in a crisis, convinced that grandma or granddad can handle anything. Thank you. Thanks very much, everybody. What do you think? I think that. Um it takes a village to talk to uh, generate the hope and the joy that you were just talking about. I'd like to once again recognize our provost, who's one of the chiefs of our village, for being here. Um, the parents and the friends and the siblings and the teachers and the, the principals who uh, who made the trip to celebrate our young writers, the writers themselves, the UP students and uh, faculty who turned out to support this and members of our community. I, I hope I included everybody because um, all of us are smarter than one of us and it takes all of us to generate joy. So thanks very much for coming out um, and help yourself to some more food and drink and that concludes our program this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody. So if uh, my students want to give me their autograph, we can do that.